Let's face it, folks, business news is dense and dry, but it doesn't have to be that way. Morning Brew is a free daily email newsletter that delivers the latest business news directly to your inbox every weekday morning. Both Jay Papazan and I are subscribers of this because it's written in a witty and conversational tone, and it's actually enjoyable to read. And best of all, it only takes just five minutes. So you can get all your most relevant news and then get on with your one thing. Sign up for free at morningbrew.com. That's morningbrew.com to get started with your daily dose of business news. This is the One Thing Podcast, where we teach you the surprisingly simple truth behind extraordinary results. My name's Jeff Woods. I'm the vice president here at the One Thing team. We believe that leadership is teaching people how to think so they can get what they need when they need it. Yet, where in your life are you accidentally limiting the possibilities of the people inside your world. One of the ways that we do this uh, is when it comes to creativity. And maybe you're an artist, maybe you don't consider yourself to be an artist. The person that you are going to hear today would suggest to you that creativity is really about problem solving. And whether you consider yourself to be an artist or not, Getting what you want out of life, achieving extraordinary results requires a level of creativity. And for many of us, we unconsciously put up roadblocks that stops people from doing their most important work and their most creative work. With that, let's get into this conversation with the host of the Accidental Creative Podcast, Todd Henry. Eating healthy is an investment. It's an investment in yourself, but it also often requires an investment of your time. But good news is Factor has delicious ready-to-eat meals that are ever fresh and never frozen. They're chef-created, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With Factor, you can choose from a weekly menu of up to 35 options, including popular things like Calorie Smart or Keto Direction or Protein Plus or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover 60 more add-ons every week like breakfast on the go, lunch, snacks, beverages to help you stay fueled, feel good all day. And we know our listeners here at The One Thing are focused on health and health goals. That's why we choose to partner with Factor. And if you visit factormeals.com slash 150 and use code 150, you can get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Again, that's factormeals.com slash ONE50 and use code ONE50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. Where did this idea for the accidental creative come from? Well, so uh, about a decade ago, oh, actually, wow, 15 years ago, I was leading uh, teams of creative people. And uh, you know, we were trying to figure out how do we organize ourselves so that we're not just producing a lot of work because that, you know, we all have to produce a lot of work, but, you know, how do we organize ourselves so that we're what I termed prolific, brilliant, and healthy all at the same time, right? <laughs> so doing a lot of work, doing good work, but also doing it in a sustainable way. And what I discovered over the course of, of many years of studying people who were create on demand professionals is that those people who seem to be prolific, brilliant, and healthy all at the same time seem to have a set of practices in their life or some sort of guiding infrastructure that help them stay on track, that help them create the kind of space and focus and energy they needed to be able to produce their work on demand. 
while other people are kind of shooting from the hip. And those people seem to go through these cycles of crash, burn, refresh, crash, burn, refresh, right? So uh, I guess 13 years ago now, uh, I launched the Accidental Creative Podcast as a way to kind of have some of those conversations. And that podcast uh, eventually led to me starting my own company a couple of years after that. And then the first book, The Accidental Creative, was published in 2011, Penguin. And then uh, since then, I've written three more books, Die Empty, Louder Than Words, and the new book, which is called Herding Tigers. And Herding Tigers is about how do, how do you create an environment in which creative people can thrive? So how do you structure their life and their rhythms so that they have the space they need to be able to focus on their most important work? Well, let's talk about that. Because for anybody who works in a traditional corporate environment, you've got your offices, you've got your cubes, you've got everybody and their mom in their email inbox, you've got people <laughs> stopping by asking you if you've got a minute and you want to be a team player. So you try to respond to email quickly. You say yes right. to attending meetings you're invited to. You say yes when people ask if you can help them. How do we begin to evolve our environment so it more supports our goals? Yeah. So if you are leading a team of people, you have to recognize that leadership isn't about being on top. Leadership is about being in the middle. <laughs> so you know you have to stand in the gap and you have to manage the pressure up from your team. But you also have to recognize part of your job is to, to manage the pressure that's coming down from the people that you report to. And often leaders and managers aren't willing to do that because it's it's uncomfortable to say no to your manager. It's uncomfortable to set boundaries for your team on behalf of their focus and their attention and their time. And so one of the things that we have to recognize when we step into a leadership role is that our responsibility is to stand in the gap and to be a freedom fighter for our team, which means that we set the thermostat for our team. We set the expectations for our team. You know, as you mentioned, a lot of times, you know, the, this culture is created on a team where people are basically spending every waking moment of their day in meeting after meeting after meeting. You know, they bounce from obligation to obligation. And oh, by the way, we expect you to get the work that you're being paid to do done in the cracks and crevices of your already cram-packed schedule, which is, is criminal because we're robbing people of their capacity to focus deeply on the work. So as leaders, we have to make strategic choices about the expectations that we set for our team. And that means establishing buffers for our team, giving them the space that they need to focus on the deep creative work that they're accountable for, or the problem solving that they're accountable for. And it also means allowing them to focus deeply on that work without feeling like you know if if I walk into their workspace and see them working and and it doesn't seem like they're necessarily being as productive as I want them to be that that I'm not going to judge them for that because I recognize that problem solving and creative work requires space and it requires focused time and so I'm going to give them the time and the space and the freedom to do that there's a book several years ago by a guy named Gordon McKenzie who was a former creative director at Hallmark and he, uh, he sort of posited this scenario where he said, imagine a farmer walking out to a fence with a bunch of cows out in the field who are grazing and yelling at the cows, hey, you lazy cows, get back to making milk, right? Well, that's exactly what the cows are doing. They're, 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 that's part of their process. And we have to allow the people on our team the same space and freedom so that they have what they need in order to be able to produce the brilliant work that they're accountable for producing. I'm listening to everything you said. And from a high level, yeah, it seems simple. Give people space to create and do their most important work and problem solve. Then I think about the real world. 
right. thinking about <laughs> our specific world. You know, I've got Kaylin who came on as our community manager. Her job is to engage the community, to be a creative mind inside the organization. And when if we actually document what has been happening, um, there's so much going on. We have so many balls that are up in the air that she's constantly working in the business and being able to pull out to create that space for you to do your best thinking is very, very hard. It's like working on the business. How do you begin to support people in making that shift so they protect that time? Well, a couple of things. I think one of the things I mentioned a few minutes ago is is the importance of establishing buffers, right? So making certain that your team has some predictable time throughout the course of their day to do that deep creative work. Now, obviously, it can't be all the time and always. I mean, you have to meet, you have to take care of the responsibilities you have as a create-on-demand professional. But one uh, organization that I work with established what they called no-fly zone time, which I love. I love that that phrase, which meant that between 11 o'clock and 1 o'clock, every Every day of the week, they, they had predictable time to focus on the work that they were accountable for. And you were under organizational mandate not to interrupt someone if they were working. So they knew regardless of what else happened, regardless of the other meetings that they had that day or the client obligations or whatever they were accountable for, they had a predictable amount of time every single work day to do that deep creative work that they were accountable for. And it created at least some measure of predictability about their schedule. And this is really the challenge, Jeff, is that for many people in contemporary work environments, there's no predictability about their schedule. And so they know they have problems to solve. They know they have work that they need to do, that they need to think about, work that's going to require some processing time. But they have absolutely no clue when that's going to happen because new new meetings pop up like weeds uh, throughout the course of their week. And so just creating some predictable space for them makes all the difference. Right. Our question for you is, what's that time? that you predictably, consistently, and reliably can block for yourself. Doesn't even have to be two hours. Can you prove to yourself that consistently you can protect 10 minutes, five minutes? Prove that you can get a win to do your most important work. I remember with my executive assistant, she was having a really tough time at one point getting some of her top priorities done because the moment she stepped into the office, it was firefighting. And I looked at her and asked her, what matters more? Are you putting out all the fires or are you getting your true 20% done? And she said, getting the 20% done. And I said, what I'm hearing is that this environment just doesn't support your goals. She said, yes. I said, so then why are you even coming in at 8 a.m.? Why not stay home till nine or 10 and get your most important work done before you even step into the office and tell the world that you're going to even be responsive to all their urgent requests? Jay's done the same thing. He doesn't even come in till noon now because he needs to have the first four hours blocked for him to do his writing time. Because if he doesn't write, that's his job. Nothing else matters. Well, that's that's huge. I think I think understanding that, recognizing that as priorities and treating your time as the precious commodity and resource that it is, I think is critical. We have to make sure that we're getting the important work done. And the problem is many organizations are set up around meetings and conversations when we all have a lot of work to do. And none of us are doing our best work when we exist in that kind of environment. Mm -hmm. I think when we start talking about the dynamics of the team, trust is something we have to to look at. I know what it feels like 
to tell yourself the story that I can't say that to my boss, or maybe maybe they they said that we could start doing it, but we don't actually trust that that's going to last, that it's going to be a consistent change. How do we as leaders comport ourselves so that we earn and maintain the trust with our team? Well, most of us don't blow trust in big ways. (laughs) I mean, we're not overtly lying to our team. We're not misleading them. The reality is most of us lose trust in the little ways. And, you know, we we tend to think about trust a little bit like a bank account. I think this, and this is a, I think this is an illustration that's been used over time. You know, you put trust in the trust bank account. And if you make a withdrawal every so often, it's okay because as long as you have a positive balance, you're okay. That's not really how trust in real life, actually how trust uh, functions. The reality is trust is more like a water balloon. You you fill it up, you fill it up, you fill it up. And if you puncture it in a tiny way, even in a small way, you're going to lose trust everywhere. All the trust is going to go flowing out of the water balloon. So we have to be very careful to maintain trust, not just in the big ways, but in the small ways. And there are a handful of ways that we unknowingly lose trust. And they play out in big ways when we need our team to take a creative risk or to do something that uh, you know, feels to them like they're going to require some stability, some platform from which to leap. And they don't know that we're going to be there because we've been forfeiting trust. One of them is what I call declaring undeclarables. Now, this is... Uh, so a couple of years ago, um, I live in uh, Southwest Ohio, by the way, Jeff. But um, a couple of years ago, a bear was spotted in Southern Ohio. And this is a kind of a rarity, but it was like probably 100 miles from where we live. But my kids were completely freaked out, right? They were like sitting around the dinner table, like they're imagining this bear crawling up the side of our house, like breaking in the window, eating them in their sleep kind of thing, right? And uh, so, you know, wanting to be a good dad, I said, listen, that bear is 100 miles away. It is over in the woods. Like it's totally, there is no chance in the world that you're ever going to see that bear. And my kids were satisfied for a while. And then two weeks later, I'm pulling out of our driveway. I pull down to the end of the street and there's a news crew camped out at the end of our street. And I rolled down my win- the window of my car. I said, hey, what's going on? And they said, you're not going to believe this. Two joggers just saw the bear run into the creek about 20 minutes ago. At the bottom of my street, Jeff, a block from my house, that bear was spotted a block from my house two weeks after I promised my kids, there's no way you're ever going to see this bear. Over the course of the next few weeks after that, that bear was spotted in my neighbor's trash. It was spotted at restaurants all over the place. Basically, everywhere our family goes, that bear was spotted. It was almost like some sort of universal you know, object lesson to me, like never do this. So let's just say that dad lost a little bit of trust right, in this scenario. So for about a month after that, every time I would say something, my kids would say, now, dad, is that really true? Or is that kind of like the bear thing? (laughs) So I lost trust because I had declared an undeclarable. I had promised them something I couldn't deliver on. And we do this all the time as leaders. We say, listen, if you work this weekend, I'm going to give you next Friday off. Oh, you know what? Actually something came up, I'm going to need you to work on Friday as well. Or we're absolutely going to go with your idea for this next project. Oh, you know what? Actually, something else came up. We're not going to go with that idea. Or we're absolutely finished with this client project. Well, actually, the client just wants you to make a few more tweaks. And by the way, we need you to do that this weekend because we're going to have to have that by Monday to deliver to them. So we do these things as leaders and they don't seem like a big deal 
in the moment. And frankly, they probably aren't that big of a deal in the moment, but they're little breaches of trust. And then at some critical moment when we need someone to step up and really trust us, we have forfeited that trust. So we have to be mindful of the little things we do, not just the big things, obviously not you know lying to people, throwing them under the bus. If you throw your team under the bus one time, you lose them forever. But the little things, the small things that we do that breach trust that over the course of time add up to big problems when we need our team to trust us. Mm. As you were talking about that, I started thinking about all the times when I do that. And oftentimes mm. it's in the moment you want to emphasize or make it sound really good without ever sure. asking the question, can I actually back it up? Absolutely. Well, and and this gets to the... I, I Really at the heart of it, I think this is about insecurity. Most of the ways that we lose trust as a leader tie back to our own personal insecurity. We say things because it makes us feel good in the moment or it makes us liked by our team. Mm. But the reality is we're doing more damage in the long run. It's, is it more important to be liked or to be effective? Of course, it's more important to be effective. But when we do this over time, it makes us feel good. Uh, you know, it sort of gives us that ping of security in the moment. I think that the, the the area where you have the potential to do the most damage to your team is the area of your greatest insecurity. It's the place where you are most secure. Whatever you're trying to feed is the area where you have the potential to do the most damage to your team. And that's probably where you're going to lose their trust. Mm. What are other ways that we accidentally diminish the creativity of our team? Well, one of the ways is by not being mindful of our team's energy, right? We tend to think about productivity in terms of time and attention, which certainly is important. You know, do we physically have the time to do this and do we have the attention necessary? But we often don't account for energy. And as a result, we look at the calendar and we say, well, yeah, absolutely. There are a couple of hours there for somebody to dedicate to this. So, yes, we can take this on. But it requires energy to do creative work, as I've heard it referred to before. As uh, you know, we we it requires emotional labor. Mm-hmm. We have to be able to bring the fullness of who we are to what we do in order to produce brilliant work. And the reality is that often, as lead many leaders, focus on time and they focus on attention, but they don't focus on the energy necessary to be able to produce that work. And if we want our team to produce great work over time, we need to account for not just their time and attention, but their energy, which means we have to be strategic about saying no. And I know this is a core message of the one thing, right? That if we want to be able to produce great work, we're going to have to say no to a lot of things. We have to practice pruning. So I encourage leaders on a consistent basis to look at all of the commitments that they're requiring of their team, all of the projects that they're doing, all of the meetings that are going on, all of the the emails that go out. By the way, why do we feel like we have to copy every single person mm-hmm. in the organization on every single email we send out, right? Every time we do that, it requires something of them. And over time, people just start ignoring us because basically all we're doing is we're saying everything is equally important, which I know is one of the lies that we often believe, right? According to the one thing. So I encourage leaders to look at those commitments and to regularly practice pruning, meaning to prune things away once they have ceased their lifespan, once their lifespan is expired um, and they're no longer effective for us. Well, and this, so, this, is, this is super interesting because this... At least at the time this is going, we we had just completed our one thing mid year reset retreat, which the whole idea is that by the middle of the year 
Most people have fallen behind on their goals. And if they don't make up the gap, not only do they fail to achieve their goals this year, but they actually set themselves behind every year that follows. And for most people, what they do is they just start adding more things to the plate. Oh, I've fallen behind. Let me do more. And it's the complete opposite like you're talking about, Todd. How can you start saying no? How can you start looking at every single thing that you are currently doing and interrogate it? Make it earn the right to keep its spot on your 411 or on your calendar. Because if doing the most important thing is the most important thing, why are you doing anything else? Yeah, and I think a really important way to measure that is to ask if this wasn't already on my calendar, would I choose to put it on my calendar right now? Right? If this were to go, if this if this were never something I have ever done, would I choose to do this right now? Would I adopt this project? Would I adopt this meeting if it wasn't already there? And that's an interesting, I think, interesting way for leaders to think about pruning. Uh, you know, there are things that are on our calendars, recurring meetings that exist, projects that exist simply because we've always done them. <laughs> it's what we've always chosen to do in the past and it's not necessarily effective today for us Ooh, or for our team. I like that question. If this were not already on my calendar, would I choose to put it there? Todd, I, I didn't tell you about this. We're in the process of reinventing the, the paper planner right now. Because yeah. our, our goal is to be people's ultimate calendars. And one of the interesting things is as we look at and have talked to people who use paper versus digital calendars, most people's digital calendars are parking lots for everyone else's priorities, <laughs> not theirs. Right. What's interesting when you use a paper planner, though, is it's blank. You've got to intentionally put things in. And as yes. we have started to play with... Uh, our our models for this and have our members and, and people who are in the beta group for this thing to actually help us co-create it. Uh, when you open up the paper planner, you see a blank spot and you ask the question, what are my true priorities for this week? You look at your 411, you see where you stand this week and you put that on the calendar. And then all of a sudden you compare that to what the digital version looks like and you realize what changes need to be made. Yes. Absolutely. I, I agree wholeheartedly. And also, when you put things on paper, you're forced to account for your choices on a more consistent basis because they're right there in front of you. Whereas if you put them in digital form, they disappear into the ether and you don't see them until they pop up again. But if you put things on paper and you're flipping pages, you have to confront the choices that you've made and you have to determine, are these still the right choices for me on a consistent basis? Which by the way, folks, um, if you did not know that we were in the process of creating the One Thing Productive Planner and you would like to be a part of that community that we are beta testing this thing with, go to theonething.com slash planner, theonething.com slash planner. And um, you can give us your information and we'll be able to have you join us as we go through the mock-ups of this thing. And you'll get to see the whole creation process, which will be really cool. Todd, I know in your book, Herding Tigers, you talked about two things that people the creatives need is stability and challenge. For those of you who heard the episode that aired just before this one with Liz Wiseman on how the best leaders make everyone smarter, she talked about supersizing people's jobs, how you issue challenges that inspire people rather than paralyze them. Todd, what's your take on how we go about issuing challenges that stimulates creativity? 
for ourselves and for our team? Yeah. So the the two things, as you mentioned, that creative people need more than anything else are stability and challenge. And we focused on stability thus far, right? Clarity of expectations, making sure that there's clear process so that there's some stable ground. Because to do risky creative work, to think big and to do big things, you have to have some stability to undergird that process. You have to have firm footing before you can make a big leap. But creative people also need to be challenged. They want to be pushed. They want to take risks. They want to try new things. They want to develop themselves. They want to discover the edges of their competence. They want to, they want to venture into places they haven't been before. So they need you to push them, to challenge them, to help them see aspects of who they are that they've never seen before. But they also want you to, to push them to take risks and to have faith in them and to, to protect them in the event that they fail, to know that you have their back. The problem for many leaders is that they aren't keeping an eye on both of these dials, stability and challenge. So in a lot of organizations, and, and these are many of the organizations that I work with, I find that they have a high degree of challenge and less than the kind of stability that they need, right? And so many of the people working in these organizations feel like they're being pushed to take risks, to try things, to experiment, but there's no process undergirding that or the process is negotiable (laughs) at any given moment. And so they feel like there's not the stability they need. And over time, they grow angry because they feel like they're being used and abused. I call these shooting star organizations Mm -hmm. because yeah, they produce a lot of great work for a while because they're really taking a lot of risks. But it can't sustain forever because there's no undergirding process. And then some people think, well, okay, I'm going to focus on process and clarity, and I'm going to make sure there are frequent checkpoints. I'm going to look over everybody's shoulder constantly and micromanage the work. And that's not going to work for highly talented people either because they want to take risks. They want to be on their own. They want to experiment. So what you have to do as a leader is understand the right mix of stability and challenge, not just for your team as a whole, but for your team members individually. So you need to know your team members and understand that maybe this one person needs to be pushed. They need to be uh, given permission to take risks, to try things, to experiment more often than others, because that's the way they're wired. They don't need as much stability, whereas somebody else might need more frequent checkpoints. They might need you to touch base with them more often. They might need more clarity of processes. You might have to go over expectations more frequently with them. And that's just the way that they're wired. And so part of your role in leading creative people is to understand the unique mix expectations and needs of the people on your team to make sure that you're giving them what they need in order to produce their best work. I remember in the in the conversation with Liz Wiseman, she asked um, the question, because sometimes issuing the right challenge, we overcomplicate it. She goes, just, just ask them, what's the right. challenge you wish we tasked you with? Yes. And it's 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 interesting because I'm going through this right now with Kaylin, where I have this vision of what it looks like to get her to be the ideal content creation partner, the ideal community manager. And that's what's inside my head. Yet right. that's a limited perspective. And she has her ideas of what she can do to get to that level. We just need to have the conversation and explore how they work together. 
That's exactly right. And, and it must happen in conversation. It must happen in partnership. Again, your job as a leader is to stand in the gap. So you're managing the expectations down and the expectations up. But in order to manage the expectations up, you have to have that conversation. You have to coach your team up. You have to push them to push them out of their ruts, push them out of their comfort zone. Sometimes people are angry in an organization and they don't even know why they're angry. They just feel like they're not getting something they need. And often that's because there is a vacuum between them and their manager. There's no conversation happening. And so simple conversation about expectations both ways, by the way, here's what I expect of you, but let's talk about what you expect from me as your manager. How can I better resource you to be able to do the work that you want to do. And if you do that, by the way, you create a patina of accountability within your organization as well. It's not just about you making sure they get what they need. It's making sure that they're voicing to you what they need. And if they don't, and then they come back and complain, you can say, well, wait a minute. We we had this conversation. Help me understand why you didn't tell me what you needed when I gave you the opportunity to do it. Right. So right. It, it really works both ways. You're creating not only the opportunity for them to voice expectations, but you're creating a patina of accountability within the organization that there is free flowing conversation happening both ways. I'm curious, what is your routine or what does your environment look like for you to get into your most creative and productive space? Oh, that's a great question. I've had the same early morning routine. So for me, like we were talking earlier about getting your most important work done early in the day, Mm -hmm. I've had the same morning routine for about 15 years now. Um, and it looks a little like this. I get up in the morning, uh, at six o'clock on the dot every morning. I have the exact same breakfast every single morning. What uh, it's just part of my routine. <laughs> I have oatmeal with frozen blueberries and shaved almonds. Mm. And, uh, and obviously, um, copious amounts of coffee is also a part <laughs> of that routine. Uh, awesome. and then, uh, I, I make my way to my home office and I study. I study for about an hour. And the first half of that time, I spend reading, absorbing um, whatever it is that I happen to be studying at that moment. And the second half, I spend taking notes on what I've read and thinking about how it applies to the work that I'm doing. You know, when we talk about the one thing, for me, I have discovered that the one thing for me, the through line in my work is study. It's the stimulus that I put in my head. When I have seasons where I'm traveling a lot, I'm working with clients and I'm on the road. And by the way, when I'm traveling, my morning routine often looks chaotic as I'm sure it does with yours. You know, If I'm giving a, giving a talk at 8.30 in the morning and I have to be there for a tech check at 7 a.m., you know, sometimes that means I don't engage in my routine. Or if there are seasons where I'm really heavily engaged in some kind of really chaotic scheduling you know for for whatever reason sometimes my morning routine does suffer just by virtue of that and i notice that my thought isn't as sharp i notice that my insights aren't as concise as they are when i have that study time in my life and so that has been a critical element of my thinking, my ability to synthesize synthesize patterns and to serve my clients. And then after that, I do my writing. So I've been under book deadline since 2009 (laughs) for four different books. Um, Actually, right now, strangely, I'm not under deadline for the first time since 2009, uh, although I expect to be shortly. But you know, I know that I have to get my writing done first thing in the morning. Um, That is when I do my, my best 
writing my best work. And if I get my writing done in the morning, I know that whatever happens the rest of the day, the most important work is done. And so that's, that's critical for me. And then the final element of my kind of my daily routine is I take a midday walk typically. And I usually walk about five miles around our our neighborhood. I work out of a home office, which is really nice when I'm not traveling. And so I have uh, the freedom to just kind of walk out of my front door and and go for a walk around the neighborhood. And sometimes I'll listen to books or I'll listen to podcasts. And sometimes I'll just put like drone-ish music on in the background and just kind of let my thoughts wander, especially if I'm trying to solve a problem. And often I come back from those walks with new insights or patterns connected for my writing for the next day or whatever it is. But just breaking away from the work that I'm doing for you know an hour or so in the middle of the day really helps to crystallize some of those suspicions that I have that haven't yet formed into patterns. I like it. I like it. I'm in the middle of a 66-day challenge right now of forming the habit of having thinking time every morning. Mm. I've noticed the days when I am most productive often start with me before I go do anything else, sitting down at a desk and either answering a deadly question, meaning a question that's so big that there's no immediate answer. I actually have to search for it. So I challenge my brain to think or where I'm thinking through the day, figuring out what questions I can ask my people to coach them to their possibilities instead of telling them what to do. And even if that's literally sitting down for one minute... It can be as small as a minute. It has a massive, massive shift in how my day goes because we all know what it feels like to show up at the office and just react. Our question for you is, what is the one thing you can do such that by doing it would make everything else easier or unnecessary when it comes to having the most creative and productive day? If forming certain routines to boost your productivity is of interest to you. We do have a course called Millionaire Productivity Habits, which we studied the habits that millionaires had in the morning, during the day, and at nighttime that led them to have highly successful days. This thing is really affordable. Go to millionaireproductivityhabits.com and you can learn more about that. Todd, where can people learn more about you? Uh, the best way to find me is at toddhenry.com. It's my personal website, or as you mentioned earlier, the Axion Creative Podcast. We've been producing it twice a week for 13 years. Nice, nice. Well, Todd, I really appreciate the time and thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Jeff. Well, there you have it. My conversation with Todd Henry, the host of the Accidental Creative Podcast. Our challenge to you is to look at your days. Look at how you've been investing your time and ask the question, am I currently setting myself up to get my most important work done? Am I setting myself up so that I can create my best work, to create my best life? For most of us, we have areas of opportunity, myself included. Based on that, what's the one thing you can do such that by doing it would make creating extraordinary work easier or unnecessary. When you go through that, you're going to get an answer. Our question for you is, is that a two-inch domino that you absolutely can knock over? Or is it more like the 18th domino that knocks down the Leaning Tower of Pisa? Oftentimes, we ask big questions and we find big answers like, oh yeah, I'm going to do that one thing. But it's not a small enough domino for you to truly feel confident that you can knock it down consistently. So based on whatever answer you got, ask the question again, what's the one thing I can do such that by doing it would make 
achieving that easier or unnecessary and ask it again and again and again until the point that you weave it down to a tiny two-inch domino. One thing to consider is looking at your calendar. We mentioned earlier, most people's calendars is a parking lot for everyone else's priorities. And as we have been going about creating the the new planner behind the one thing, <laughs> when you've got a blank slate, you just look at your 411, you see what your priorities are for this week, and then you go to that calendar and you just start filling it in with those true priorities. You compare that to whatever's on your digital counter and it becomes very clear what matters most and what everything else is. And you get to have the conversation of how can you start acting in order of priority and where are you going to consciously choose to act out of priority? If you're interested in going on this journey as we create the One Thing Planner, you can go to theonething.com slash planner. That's with the number one in the URL, theonething.com slash planner. This is not something we're just creating behind closed doors. We are beta testing it. We're constantly creating new mocks and giving them to you so that you can start playing with them and giving us your feedback and you can automatically join us along that journey. And if you are very serious about developing powerful routines, consider checking out millionaireproductivityhabits.com where we show you the habits millionaires use during the morning, throughout the day, and at nighttime to have highly productive days. Thanks so much for listening to The One Thing Podcast. We really appreciate you and we look forward to being with you in the next episode.